Hey everybody, welcome to the Vertiguys show. I'm Eric. And I'm Sean. And we are checking out the dark side of DC. We are here to recap and review Vertigo Comics, starting with the big three, Sandman, Hellblazer, and Preacher. And which one of those are we going to do this week? Well, today we're talking about Preacher, issues 19 through 21. Issue 19 of Preacher is called Of Things to Come. It was written by Garth Ennis and drawn by Steve Dillon. And the cover is by Glenn Fabry. Actually, those credits pretty much extend for the whole episode. Pretty much the whole series. <laughs> yeah, more or less. So this cover shows Jesse and Tulip surrounded by Grail soldiers, or maybe Grail gardeners or Grail doctors. Well, in any case, they're looking quite serene, despite the fact that several people are pointing guns at them. Incidentally, Jesse is shaping his hand as if he's holding a gun, but he doesn't have one. He's actually lighting his uh, cigarette quite calmly while Tulip is blowing on her gun. And again, she is depicted with a tiny revolver when we know she has a forty-five. Yeah, it's just not accurate. All these Grail guys have tiny revolvers too. What's up with that? Also, like, the muscles of her abdomen have been, like, lovingly rendered in typical Glenn Fabry style. Mm -hmm. This grail guy on the right looks an awful lot like a woman. Maybe it is a woman. I guess they recruit from all the top services in the world, so it's possible they have woman thugs. Maybe it's just a French man. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> looks very angry. That's in keeping with the sort of humor we're going to get <laughs> throughout this story. <laughs> Oh, I'll say now, because because we bring it up, that one of the things that struck me about this story arc is that I can't really tell Grail soldiers apart. Like, when there start being a lot of them, one of them has a name and is important, and I couldn't tell which one he was. Isn't his name Marseille? Yes. Doesn't that just mean France? There were a bunch of times later in this story when I was like, did Marseille just die? But... <laughs> is Marseille dead? <laughs> but that is getting ahead of ourselves, I suppose. So we open on a fighter jet, and this is a flash mac, a flash mac? It's a flash macaroni and cheese back to the Gulf of Mexico, July 1994. And there is a pilot, and he's on what seems to be a pretty routine flight when he is called to go check out a UFO. Yeah, he thinks that's pretty weird. Not aliens but literally like a flying object that they don't know what it is. So they go to the coordinates in question, and they see it. It is an angel screaming as it falls burning from heaven. Yeah, and it nearly hits them. It's a whole thing. Tommy has to break right. I mean, it's a whole thing. Yeah, I like this. Oh, you know, someone's dropped a cigarette down the back of the ASR, and the damn thing's showing on screen. I like that, too. I actually wrote down the thing about the cigarette in my notes as well. And that's uh, the angel falling past the fighter jet is our title page of things to come. Yeah, now 1994 is about 18 months, two years maybe, before this issue actually takes place? Yeah, I think that's right. Okay, and we're not going to find out the significance of this for quite a while. 18 minutes later, the U.S. president calls Star. Hello, Mr. Star. I'm sorry to bother you. Yeah, now that's one that really shows the power and influence of this organization. So it's a good shortcut. Yeah. So that brings us to Paris in the present day. Jesse is sitting in a beautiful red sports car. We'll find out in a page or two that it's a Ferrari. Uh, unless you could just recognize it by just by looking at a drawing of a Ferrari. 
I mean, this seems like a detailed enough drawing that if you know your Ferraris, you might you might have known. I'm going to give him credit that he probably did the research, Mr. Steve Dillon. Yeah. But we didn't recognize it as a Ferrari because we are less into cars and more into comic books. <laughs> so, uh, so Tulip gets into the car, and the dealer man... What the hell do you call him? A salesman? I guess he's a salesman. He's a car salesman. Yeah, so the car salesman says, Excellent choice, Reverend. And how will you be paying? American Express, I reckon. Yes? Sure, we're American. This is the Express. And he guns it. He peels out of there. It's a very satisfying moment. Stealing cars. Yeah, stealing cars, just like the old times. And Jesse tells Tulip that they can't keep the car because it'll be too hot. The cops will be after it. But he basically just couldn't resist stealing it for old time's sake. Yeah. Now, she tells him that she uh, purchased a couple of little black slinky beans. <laughs> yeah. Meaning lingerie. And he says, knock it off, woman. This here is a serious rescue attempt. Now, hang on a minute. You just stole a Ferrari for laughs. <laughs> like, not... 30 seconds ago. Yeah, it's true. So that kind of bothered me. Besides, French lingerie is the best. I don't actually know that from experience, but it seems like it should be pretty good. Well, since lingerie seems like a French word. Well, Jesse is a fan of deferred gratification, but not no gratification whatsoever. He does tell her as they as they hit the road to keep an eye open for motels, okay? <laughs> Meanwhile, at Masada, Star receives a report on Custer, and he reminds his agent to do nothing more than observe. You mean to do nothing more than observe Jesse? Yes. Well, yeah, he's. I think he's ordering, like, the head of all French police not to, not to bother Jesse in any way. Yeah, I think that's fair, and we're going to see some evidence of that in a minute. He says, because I say so, which in practical terms means that were you to disobey me, you would go home tonight to find your wife and children butchered in their beds. Yeah, I guess he's talking to the superintendent. So I assumed that was someone he had suborned. But yeah, you're probably right. It's the head don't, of the whole gendarmerie. Don't be giving Jesse Custer detention, <laughs> Mr. <laughs> superintendent. Now, Marseille appears, and Star asks how many people on the base are loyal to him. A couple of issues ago, when they were trying to question Cassidy, he killed two of them. So counting Marseille, there are now... Yeah, I thought in that issue he was like, like the last time we heard a conversation on this topic, he was like, oh yeah, most but not all of the men on the base. And I was like, well, there are three. <laughs> but they have to have a conversation about how much Allfather D'Aranique, Hair Star's boss, knows. He knows something is amiss or he wouldn't have sent Puissant to San Francisco. On the other hand... My continued existence proves that he hasn't connected me to it. Custer is the key. If I can capture him without Derenique finding out, we're home free. If only I could find out what he wants with Custer. Now, at this point, Star gets pretty clever. At least I think this is pretty clever. He asks Marseille how many hard-trained men they have on hand that don't speak a word of English. Right. Now, Marseille says they recruit from the top intelligence agencies, so there aren't very many of them. Only about six. Send them out to intercept Custer and his woman. Have them liaise with the gendarmerie until they make contact. Warn them that the woman is probably armed, 
and have them stay in contact with Masada throughout. Tell them nothing more. And then Star and Marseille go off to see the autopsy of the creature, which we know as Cassidy. Some cocaine later. <laughs> we cut to Las Vegas, where DeBlanc and Fiore are snorting coke. Now, we haven't seen DeBlanc and Fiore since issue number four of Preacher. Why don't you remind us who they are? Okay, so these are the angels from the Order Adephi. Right, whose job it was to keep Genesis chained up in heaven, Genesis being the nascent god spirit that is possessing Jesse at this time. Yeah, that's the reason that he has the word of God, the ability to make people obey any order that they can understand. That's right, and when they realized that it had escaped, they hired heaven's assassin, the Saint of Killers, to go put down Jesse and Genesis. But that was a fucking fiasco, and the two of them ended up expelled from heaven for their troubles. Yeah, it probably didn't help that Jesse peremptorily summoned them to Earth and questioned them about the, uh, about the whole issue. But in any case, they are now thinking that maybe falling from heaven wasn't such a bad thing. After all, Earth has cocaine and fucking. Yeah, they're really living it up as humans. They're really enjoying having the ability to sin when somebody knocks on the door. And this is a lovely piece of comic timing in comics form. Who? Fuck! It's the Saint of Killers. Yori takes a look and then immediately slams the door closed, but the Saint of Killers, with a shove of one hand, pushes it in and then steps over to enter the room. Now, this is the first time that we've seen the Saint of Killers since his cameo appearance in issue 13 of Preacher, the last time he really did anything of any importance was issue 5? Yeah, right at the end of the first story arc. Now, the last time we saw him, he was admiring Jesse's handiwork in burning down Angelville. Right, right. That was the cameo in, in issue 13. Alright, so they are terrified, but it turns out the saint is not here to kill them for sinning. And he says, I ain't working for heaven no more. In the quit, he's the only one commands me. Now he's gone... I reckon I can do how I please. And what he wants is to finish things with the preacher. Yeah, specifically he wants to know where the grail is. And they try their best to convince him not to mess with the grail. Because that'll just fuck up everything. And even they are intimidated by the power and reach of the grail. They believe that the grail has an inside man in heaven. We never found out how, but they even know what's going on in heaven. And they can get to anybody. Do you know what would happen to us if they found out we told you where to... The Saint of Killer sticks his gun in the Blanc's mouth. And they quickly reveal that the Grail's secret HQ is Masada in France, 20 miles west of the Italian border. But we already knew that. We knew that. But the Saint did. What a boring scene. <laughs> Well, the saint leaves without killing them. I'm obliged to you. And they seem pretty convinced that this screws everything up for the two of them. They're hosed because of the grail now. I hate to remind you, DeBlanc, but you were the one who ordered him set loose in the first place. Oh, we're, we're doing them English like on the TV show? Yes. Okay, all right. Fiori? Yes? Suck my cock. That brings us back to Masada, where Cassidy's autopsy is underway. 
The doctor plans to start by removing Cassidy's eyewear, which is to say his omnipresent sunglasses. Like, fuck you, Will. <laughs> Cassidy rips off the doctor's hand, knocks out two more doctors, and bites one and drinks his blood. Don't touch the alarm, Marseille, says Star, watching from the observation chamber. I can handle this. Open the door to the lab. He opens the door just for a moment. Close the door, Marseille. And Cassidy looks to see there's a grenade sitting there now. Star covers his ears and there's a boom. Yeah, now at this point, they are actually still pretty sure that Cassidy's okay. The dialogue implies that he's been more or less blown to pieces, but Star says, I very much hope it's not dead, Marseille, because I intend for it to suffer dreadfully. He's pretty much through being curious about Cassidy. Cassidy played Star for a fool, and Star wants him to suffer. Yeah. The only problem is, suffering on the scale I'm hoping to inflict is really a bit beyond me. I'm just a soldier. What I need are the skills of a total and utter sadist. And I know just the man. I just want to... When the doctor says cause of death has been determined as multiple gunshot wounds, and Star says, Fucking brilliant, doctor. I'd never have guessed. I wrote that in my notes there. Hair sarcasm. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we cut back to Tulip and Jesse. They are still in the Ferrari, which Jesse thinks is weird. Why no cops? For a second, I was like, what do you mean they're still in the Fiori? No, no. They're similar names, different characters. Yeah. One's a car, not really <laughs> a character. Now, we know that Star had ordered the French police only to observe. Right, yeah, he just basically, he says how the cops have been leaving him alone, despite the fact that they're in a hot Ferrari. Yeah, and Jesse asks Tulip to check them out for motels, and Tulip thinks it's funny that he wants to wait until they get a room to fuck. Of course, I remember a time when we'd have just pulled over to the side of the road. Shit, I must be getting civilized in my old age. Speaking of banging, though, Star is currently fucking a prostitute. Yeah, she's a very pretty prostitute. Yes, she is. Steve Dillon did a good job on that one. And she is moaning about his size and prowess, which is apparently the usual thing. But he stops her because it isn't working. And yeah, he says, no, this just isn't working for me. And, and she gets really pissed off about that, which is one part where like the writing sort of fell flat for me. Because okay. I just don't see a professional prostitute getting that pissed off. Because, you know, the client's not enjoying it. Like... What does she care? She's still going to get paid. Well, yeah, and he says that she's still going to get paid, which sort of immediately calms her down, which is perhaps the sign of, of a prostitute not being written all that complexly. <laughs> yeah, I just thought, like, I don't know. She doesn't seem as impersonal as you might expect. Mm -hmm. Now, the face of Bob flashes before Star's eyes, Bob being the sex detective, the guy who raped him back in San Francisco. That was back in issue 14. Yeah, now, this is the start of a really dumb and homophobic running joke. And I don't like it. Getting raped made Star gay, or made him realize he's gay, which is neither is, you know, particularly cool or funny. Yeah, I mean, they do some pretty effective one-liners with it. It happens a little later on that out of frustration, he says, I need a good fucking. And then he turns to the guy and he says, I, I mean a good fuck, a good fuck. <laughs> and that's a pretty good joke. 
but the the concept of the of the thing it the overall thing itself is yeah pretty pretty shitty now star gets a call from marseille it turns out jesse has stopped 100 miles north of arles star tells them to proceed with the capture and he wants a word with the chief armorer we'll find out what that's about in a little bit and we cut to the inside of a french restaurant a very classy french restaurant we are given to believe yeah, and Tulip has to order their dinner because Jesse doesn't speak French. His mother refused to teach him because Grandma was French. Yeah, I thought that was a nice touch. Mm -hmm. Jesse jokes about the French lack of humility, and Tulip jokes about Jesse's lack of humility, and Jesse is pissed that the French set off a nuclear bomb in the Pacific Ocean. Right. So this was a, one of the major controversies of 1996 in international relations. The... Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty was just about to be signed, which right. would have forbidden nuclear detonations for any purpose. Yeah, and that's when the French President Jacques Chirac ordered nuclear tests at Mururoa. Right, and I, the idea was that they would get so much data from the extensive nuclear testing that they were going to carry out before the treaty that they could use virtual tests for everything else mm -hmm. that they would ever need. Nonetheless, it was widely seen, especially among some red-blooded Americans, hmm. as, as Jesse says, dropping a thermonuclear device in the Pacific just because you're pissed you ain't got an empire anymore. Yeah, now, ironically, the test ban was adopted by the UN in 1996, but it's not enforced because eight nations have declined to ratify it, including the United States. <sighs> right. Although I, I do think that the United States has still refrained from... Nuclear detonations, right. ever since the treaty was agreed to in theory. Anyway, Tulip asks if Jesse misses the old days and the car thieving, and she mentions places like Phoenix or San Antonio or Monument Valley. Well, I gotta say, I think maybe we both grew up a little bit since then, hun. And I hope you understand, I still got this thing I gotta do. I let the Lord away from quitting on us. I figure I just ain't worth a good goddamn... Oh, I know about all that, and I know you'd be only too happy to keep me out of it, too. You still think it's all too dangerous for me, which is probably the reason I don't just leave you to it. But I have to admit, if you were to just lose heart and give up on it, you wouldn't be the man I fell in love with anymore. Now, as they talk... I do want to point out that Jesse promises once this is over, they'll go steal the presidential limo. Yeah, that's a good joke, too. But as they talk, we see a red dot from a sniper rifle coming to rest on Jesse's hand. And, and an unseen voice narrates, Jesse, why won't you stop, Jesse? If only you'd leave me alone, I'd do the same for you. Okay, so that's not Tulip. I thought that line was very confusing. It seemed like Tulip did not want to be left alone. Like Tulip wouldn't be asking for permission to dump Jesse. Oh, no, no, I think that's God. Okay, that makes sense. This is... This is an obstacle about to be thrown in their path, and that's the Almighty wishing he didn't have to do things like that? Yeah, I think it's something like that. Okay, that makes a lot more sense. So, that brings us to Preacher issue number 20, Too Much Gun. On the cover here, we have Cassidy on a stone floor riddled with bullets. Actually, it's a tile floor. I suppose that's right. Really gaudy, multicolored tiles. And Cassidy's looking pretty bad here, but not actually as bad as he was in the comic book. 
where like one of his arms was blown completely off when they were trying to do the autopsy in the previous issue. Right. There was dialogue, I think, implying that they needed a shovel to pick up Cassidy's body to move it to wherever they're going to move it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. So we pick up the action back in the same dinner. And this is, yeah, this is right where we left off. Jesse has decided that it's time to retire for the evening. And... I, <laughs> I enjoy his proposition here. I've been romantic as hell all night. Candlelit dinner for two in our own little French hideaway. Seems to me it's time to proceed with the torrid sex acts just as soon as we can. <laughs> and and uh, Tulip chokes that he's a romantic devil. But then she notices the red dot on his shoulder and dives across the table to shove both of them out of the way. Jesus, honey, don't you want to wait till upstairs? For God's sake, Jesse, we just got fucking shot at. Yeah, there's a crack in the window, but they didn't hear a goddamn thing. Silenced rounds. I think you silenced the gun, not the rounds. All right. <laughs> in any event, more rounds come through the window, killing the waiter. Yeah, that poor waiter is toast. And Tulip says, told you so. And that's the title page, Too Much Gun. So Tulip correctly identifies this as being the grail. And Jesse tries to use the word on him. You fucks! You drop them guns and reach for the goddamn sky! And his reply is more bullets. Tulip deduces that they don't speak English. Yeah, she figured it out quick. Which is good. I, I think maybe it's a little bit of a cheat that she figures it out this fast. But it would be pretty inconvenient to the plot to have Jesse concerned at this point that the word doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And have to, you know go through a whole thing. Well, actually, you know, now that I think about it, God was able to make people immune to the word. Grandma and Jody, back in Angelville. Yeah, that's so true. So, if the last page of the last issue was meant to imply that God was going to interfere here, he could have, but he didn't. <laughs> they didn't speak English anyway. <laughs> right. God didn't bother to check their character sheets before he, uh... <laughs> before he added that particular attribute. So we see the men closing in. Tulip tells Jesse to get to the car as she'll hold them off. Yeah, he argues for a minute, but she won't have it. And she starts laying down cover fire as he makes a break for the car. And then we're in a pretty long, pretty good action scene. Yeah, one thing you'll notice here is that they're attempting to use lethal weapons against Tulip, and they have non-lethal weapons ready for Jesse. Yeah. There's a tear gas grenade that comes into the window next to Tulip, and Jesse runs into a bad guy in the parking lot and punches him through the windshield of a car. Yeah, and there's a guy here with a big, nasty-looking machete. And Jesse says, You fucks could speak American. I wouldn't have to hurt you. Oh, well. And they throw a proper grenade, not a tear gas grenade, at Tulip, and she dives out the window like Superman. Or maybe more like Neo, since she has that gun in her hand. Or, or like Trinity in the in the first movie. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Beats, anyway, it's pretty fucking cool. Jesse beats three guys unconscious. Tulip shoots at least one. They drive over another guy, making their escape. Jesse! Car! Go! Yeah, so Tulip makes it to the car, and they drive off, and then she says, All my beautiful lingerie I bought in Paris. Oh, fuck. You want to go back for it? I don't think so. Because a guy's shooting at them as they drive away. Yeah. Which, you know, really, that's, you know, Star could be pretty angry if he saw that. 
because you can't just you can't just shoot at a car when one of the people in it you're supposed to take alive. Well, maybe this guy's so good he thinks he can hit the tires. I mean, he obviously can't, but yeah, I, I think I think that calls for for a, a torturing <laughs> from Harry Star. He's obviously using a submachine gun of some kind, maybe an MP5. Anyway, we smash cut immediately to Marseille summing up the battle. Two dead, three beaten. Marseille the person, not Marseille the place. Yes. This is back at Masada. And Star is pissed because he had no idea Jesse knew how to fight. I've seen the woman's ability with firearms myself, but who the hell taught Custer to fight? He's supposed to have grown up on a farm, for Christ's sake. What the fuck can you learn on a farm? But there is some good news. <laughs> His denunciations of rustic life aside... <laughs> There is a bit of good news. His friend has arrived, and so has the thing he asked the chief armorer for. Right, which was last issue, and we still don't know what it is. Yeah, and so Star greets his friend Frankie. I'm well, Frankie. You? I got my fucking dick cut off. They call me Frankie the eunuch now. Right, so we have here a three-page soliloquy about how Frankie got his dick cut off. The short version is Russian mobsters. Right, he's an Italian mobster himself. Right. And it, it's pretty funny, <laughs> if, if very wordy. Yeah, I, I thought that this was a great showcase of Garth Ennis's writing ability. Like, this is a really interesting scene, despite the fact that it's mostly just, you know, Frankie and Hairstar standing in one place talking. But you really do kind of understand Frankie the eunuch. Yeah, and in a way it's not playing down what he's been through, even though it's played for comedy. It yeah. certainly makes him the character that he is, that we're going to be interacting with for the next few issues. Right. I, and I think this this goes to something that will come up again with Allfather D'Aranique, which is that this comic repeatedly uses physical injuries and deformities and things like D'Aranique's weight mm -hmm. as signifiers of grotesque characters. Yeah. You know, in ways that wouldn't be considered particularly cool today. This is true. You know, and, and so it's sort of problematic, but at the same time, I think it is interesting how Garth Ennis is sort of calling upon this literary tradition. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know... It's not always the case, but with Frankie and with Veronique, their physical deformities came upon them karmically. They are a mark of sins that they commit. Right. Veronique is a glutton, and Frankie... Well, Frankie says, You know how I do business. I cut a few guys' dicks off in my time, but Jesus, I always leave them a fucking inch to piss with. Right. In any case, you certainly understand how Frankie has become this character for whom... Inflicting pain is the only joy left in his life. Right. You know, he's a he's a twisted guy in terms of psychology. Yeah. And there's a touch of masculinity issues here, too, as you might expect. He says that his father disowned him, but Toscanis have always had dicks. And then he ends his speech with, you gotta bounce back, Mr. Star. You gotta bounce back. And Star has just the thing. Well, you've seen the tape. Yeah, I watched it on the helicopter. You got this fucking guy it's impossible to kill. You want me to kill him? Not right away. As you'll have seen, creatures capable of withstanding enormous punishment 
while at the same time regenerating a certain amount of damaged tissue through the consumption of, in this instance, human blood. I want you to use these defensive mechanisms against it. He just makes it clear to Frankie that he wants Cassidy eliminated, but very slowly. Right. So Jesse and Tulip stop by a scenic river. And she asks what he's thinking, and he's thinking he doesn't want to have another fright about it, but he's more scared than ever she'll get hurt. Yeah, I like he tries to throw her a fake here by saying, I reckon we ought to hold off on the rest of the trip till tonight. They know we're coming in Masada, and we can't take Cass out of there till it gets dark anyhow. And then there's a panel of silence, and she replies, What are you really thinking, Jesse? She points out that not only did she not get hurt, but they won. And she says... If I was another guy, you wouldn't have given it a second stop. You'd just think, he can handle himself. Cool. But you can't accept the fact that I can deal with this stuff, can you? Honey, what I've been trying to tell you is, it ain't what's happened at one time or other that worries me. It's the thought of what could happen to you. It scares the living shit clean out of me. She points out that he wouldn't have survived last night without her. Yeah, she has a pretty good argument here, since she's basically better in a fight than he is. Yeah, at least with gun-toting mercenaries. Meanwhile, Star goes back to his prostitute, chasing off an unlucky guy who happened to be there at the time. She says she thought she didn't do it for him anymore, and he says she won't without certain modifications. <laughs> yeah, he hands her a bag with $5,000 in it, and it is strongly implied a strap-on dildo. Uh, yeah, like, I, I'm with you on this one. We didn't need this page at all. So Cassidy wakes up in a deep stone pit under bright lights. Anyone fucking there? Sure there fucking is. Now who the fuck are you supposed to be? Name's Frankie. <laughs> I was not going to read this, but I will because it's funny. Frankie, well, Frankie, how'd you like to tell me the bleeding score before I climb up there and bite the bollocks off you? Wouldn't make no fucking difference to me, friend. And believe me, you ain't going to be in any kind of shape to climb up anywhere. So he starts bragging about the gun that Star has provided him, a Lee-Enfield rifle. This is what came from the Chief Armor, am I right? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. It's a rifle that the British have been using for almost a century, and he waxes poetic about how it's just made with a certain amount of craftsmanship that is unmatched in these days. It's a very, a very beautiful and very reliable and very powerful weapon. And using it, he blows out one of Cassidy's knees. Yeah, all I kept thinking during this part while he's carrying on about the gun is like, Cassidy, you're missing your chance to get up there and bite this motherfucker. Yeah, it's true. I guess so. <laughs> and we know he can do it because we saw him punch his hands through the walls of the Empire State Building to climb up. So yeah, he's. I guess he's trapped by the fact that talking is a free action. <laughs> right. We played a little bit of paper and pencil role-playing games, if you guys can't tell. <laughs> yeah, so he just continues bragging about the gun as he shoots Cassidy over and over, taking out his limbs so he's unable to fight back. See, this is exactly what I'm talking about. Where's the art in a fucking machine gun? Where's the love in firing 30 fucking bullets in two fucking seconds? Listen to that, friend. Click-clack. Clack-click. That's the fucking sound of history. And he tells Cassidy... Now you go ahead and start growing some of that shit back, friend. You're going to be here a long fucking time. We cut to Star. He is in a good mood. He's feeling great. I guess his modifications 
to his sex life were successful, which, good for him. And the torture he ordered is going on. I don't want to say good for him for that <laughs> one. We, we, don't, we here at Vertikais <laughs> do not judge the kinks engaged in by consenting adults. However, we do judge when you order good guys tortured in a comic book. <laughs> yeah. Or even bad guys. So on hand to spoil his good mood is Marseille. The All-Father is on his way here. And that will spoil your mood, because that guy sucks, as we'll find out. Now we find Jesse having a conversation with the Duke. John Wayne. Now, John Wayne's opinion on whatever it is that Jesse's planning seems to be that it's pretty low down, but you gotta do what you gotta do. Yeah, and he says, think I should tell her that? No. Me either. Meanwhile, Tulip is singing an Alanis Morissette song? Head over feet. Is that an Alanis Morissette song? It is. Ding! Got it in one. Yeah, and we see her pick up a big rock from a stone wall and sneak up on Jesse. And she splorches it into the water. Jesse has a really good piece of dialogue here. And I can't ever forget I saw Tulip get shot in front of me once before. And seeing that was like seeing the good go out of the world forever. But this thing I'm considering doing to her, it just ain't fair at all. And she splorches him, and he's all wet, and... And his cigarette goes out. <laughs> and she's laughing at him, and he kind of smirks and says, Then again. And that brings us to the end of issue 20. Well, moving on to preacher number 21, Stormbringers. Cover depicts Allfather Daronique, which makes this the first time we've seen him. I wrote in my notes, a barfy old pope. <laughs> yeah, so he's sort of in front of it. He's got it. some weird curtains, and he's sitting next to a skull. I, I was going to say he's sitting in front of a tapestry depicting some kind of religious history, but you can call it some weird curtains. Some weird curtains, man. I bet he got them at Bed Bath & Beyond in the weird curtains section. He's dressed in a kind of vaguely cardinal-like outfit, and yes, his front is covered with vomit. And frankly, I think he's a little less fat here than in the comic book. Oh yeah, he's considerably less fat here than in the comic book. But that's just Glenn Fabry. Everybody is drawn in great physical shape. Or characters who are in good physical shape are drawn in great physical shape. Characters who weigh a thousand pounds are drawn as if they weigh 350 or so. <laughs> <laughs> so we find a ship traveling a storm-tossed sea, and everyone aboard is dead. There's a dead man lashed to the wheel, holding it in place. And watching the storm is the ugliest bastard of all, the Sainted Killers. I gotta say, this is a really, this is just a really cinematic couple of pages. It's giving us just a little update on what the Saint is up to, but it's doing so with maximum menace. And I can't hold it against them that the weather is exactly what's needed to set the mood. <laughs> <laughs> you imagine him, like, looking all pissed off like that while looking out of a sunny sea. <laughs> See, now I'm picturing him, like, walking through Costa del Sol with the music playing. Right, there's, like, palm trees and stuff. It's all beautiful. And he's, like, mm, walking past the vacation. Rumpadoo. <laughs> and we're back in Masada, where a plane's coming in for a landing. Yeah. And it starts to land. And part of the landing gear breaks off every fucking time. Yeah, Star explains to Marseille that 
The strip can't take larger planes, and helicopters make Derenik nauseous, but he's so fat that he breaks the landing gear on small planes. And my first thought was that is ridiculous. I mean, the weight capacity on even a small plane has got to be enough to carry several people. Derenik can't be much more than 400 pounds. We see that he's able to walk. And so I checked into that, and I found out some stuff. Oh, wow, okay. <laughs> you pulled out the research guns on this, of all things. <laughs> so it turns out that pilots of small planes need to be cognizant of the passengers' weights. Many small planes can't actually carry their maximum passenger capacity with full baggage, and strain on the landing gear is one of the problems that can result. However... Excessive weight in the back would be more likely to cause a stall in flight than to break the landing gear. Oh, so you're saying that Garth Ennis is being generous with them here, and instead of breaking the landing gear as they come in for a landing, what would actually happen is that they would fall out of the fucking sky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that basically sums it up. Derenik's weight in the front of the plane would be likely to break the front landing gear. In the back of the plane, it would force the nose up, uh, affecting air intake and likely causing a stall. Interesting. Interesting stuff. Well, we turn the page and we get our first look at Allfather Dierenique, and he is a truly epic gentleman. I think vast is a word here. <laughs> he's an awfully big man. And he's also wearing, like, a very impressive white and red uniform. Yes, and he blesses everybody several times, and he says that he and Star have much to talk about. Now, Star says, why leave San Marie? Yeah, they have a little verbal sparring here as Hair Star tries to inconspicuously ask what the fuck he's doing there. <laughs> right, and D'Aranique basically parries his questions, playing everything off as if it's completely normal. Right, as the Allfather, he says he can do whatever he wants, so why not visit Masada now? The star points out that Derenik's first duty is to the child. Shouldn't leave the child's side, right? As a matter of... Now, at that point, there are four strong men from the Grail attempting to lift Derenik out of the plane. And one of them is a dropper. <laughs> yeah, so they can't hold up Derenik and he falls on this guy. And Star immediately blows the guy's brains out. In God's name, says Marseille. Would you rather have seen him tortured to death? Because that's what the fat fuck would have ordered, and I have neither the time nor the inclination. Yeah, so that pretty swiftly gets across that, like, Dierenique is not a nice guy. <laughs> if Hair Star, who is very much not a nice guy, is a nicer guy. <laughs> yeah, and he's not just a ruthless not a nice guy, he's a petty not a nice guy. Right. Now, Derenik wants to head to our quarters to rest, and at our, Star realizes, Humper Dumper Dido! Oh my god, he brought the child. I'm the Messiah! Humper Dido! Humper Doo! <laughs> and he face palms. Yeah, that's, that's a full on Picard maneuver right there. <laughs> now, I had to wonder what the hell Humper Dido is. My research has turned up nothing but preacher references. No, I, I think it's just a made-up just a made-up word-slash-sound that this, you know, child of generations of incest is constantly uttering. It's just something he thinks is fun to say. Like, dolls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly the same as that. 
So back in the Ferrari, Tulip and Jesse are carrying on the same argument that they've been having. He wants to go rescue Cassidy by himself. Tulip feels that she should come along. He needs her after all. Now, he tries to make the case that he has to do it because he owes Cassidy one. But he doesn't understand why she feels she has to be there. And she doesn't understand why he feels he has to do it. Yeah, but she points out that she owes Cassidy one as well. She was the one that he was saving. By volunteering to go with the Grail. Right. And that happened, geez, way back in like, it was several issues ago now. Like issue 16 or so. I think it was 16, yeah. And (laughs) incidentally, he reminds Tulip of the time that Cassidy saved his life in around issue number four by running the Sand of Killers over with a truck. Jesse, that was the worst fucking rescue I ever saw in my life. It didn't even work. (laughs) But Jesse says that's not the point. The point is that he tried. And he had no reason to after I insulted him before, except he knew he had to do what was right. Now that may be kind of an old-fashioned principle nowadays, but not to me it ain't. And the way I see it, that makes old Cassifella I'm proud to call my good friend. When you turn your back on your friend, you may as well go ahead and join the asshole squad. Because you just became one more reason why the damn world's gone to hell. Great speech. Put your spin-off Asshole Squad number one on Houston now. <laughs> Fucking Asshole Squad by Kurt Dennis. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> the boys, maybe. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. That actually did that. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, though, but no, this goes back to this goes back to what we've been talking about, about about the themes of Preacher. Yeah. And and one of them being like the positive elements of masculinity, like the positive values. You know, Jesse does not believe in passing the buck. Right. Do the right thing, never leave a friend behind. And these are not just ideas that he professes to. These are things he lives by. Exactly. Although, although Tulip, you know, is right to point out that there's no reason these virtues can't be ones that she ascribes to as well. Oh yeah. For sure. And I, I actually happen to think that she's right in this argument. Mm-hmm. Like, she owes Cassidy just as much as Jesse does, if not more. And she's just as capable as Jesse is, if not more. I mean, he has a superpower, kind of. <laughs> but <laughs> It was a superpower that was a lot less useful in the last encounter than her mundane skills. But he says that he's going to ask her one more time and he'll accept whatever her answer is. Will you please let me do this by myself? Nope. Okay, then. And he decides to stop at a motel, and I'll reach Masada tomorrow. And then we get it done. Come on, friend. This ain't getting us nowhere. Now we're back in the pit, and Cassidy is riddled with bullets and apparently dead. Yeah, and he has shot the same arm off that was shot off before. Yeah, and now there's no flesh on that arm. Can he really have shot it that much? Or do you think that somehow Cassidy's vampiric nature doesn't preserve his body parts once they're separated? I think it just must have been detached for a while. Okay. Well, Frankie chats about how he knows that the grenade didn't kill Cassidy, so he knows he's just faking. And he proves it by shooting Cassidy in the crotch. You think that's going to fucking grow back? Jesus, I fucking hope so. Some guys have all the luck. On the next page, we get our first look at the child as he's pissing on the rose bushes. No, no, s'il vous plaît. 
Uh, yeah, Paul, who's 94 years old, is following him around trying to stop him. Yeah, we know Paul from the previous story arc where he was ordered by Cassidy to uh, cast off his crutches in a walk. And he was unable to do so. Right. Which, probably the same thing would happen if Jesse told him to cast off his crutches and walk. But in any case... <laughs> yeah, I guess what happens if Jesse orders you to do something physically impossible is something of a gray area. Well, he certainly didn't imbue Hoover with any particular magical sand-counting ability. No, nor Sheriff Root with the ability to fuck himself. <laughs> Not in a safe, sane, and consensual manner. <laughs> <laughs> On the other hand, he can't order people to die, and they will simply die. Yeah, that's true. So, Marseille and Star are discussing this. Marseille is horrified to discover that this is the descendant of Jesus, but Star says... After 2,000 years of keeping them breeding inside one bloodline, we're lucky the bastard doesn't have antennae. Marseille asks, wouldn't the divine essence keep the bloodline from getting tainted? Son of God or son of man, Marseille, you can't fuck your sister and expect much good to come of it. And this, Star goes on to explain, while the child pisses on Paul's face, this is why he formed his own conspiracy within the Grail. The kid is obviously unable to credibly take the reins of the world. Yeah, and... Having seen all this, Marseille says, basically, that he used to doubt Star before, but that this proves his point, and he will never doubt him again. Right. Now they have to go see Derenique. And Star knows that he suspects something because Puissan, who was assigned to investigate a conspiracy within the Grail, is dead. He might look like a one-ton fuckwit, but in reality, he's lethally clever. Now, they don't think that Derenique knows that Star is in charge of the conspiracy, nor that Custer's on his way here, nor about Cassidy, nor about Cell 99. At least, I bloody well hope he doesn't. The one thing we don't know is, what does he want with Custer? Are you armed, by the way? Of course. Good. If it turns out that he's on to us, put the gun in your mouth. The last thing you want is for Derenique to take you alive. Tulip wakes up in the hotel. Alone. He went and did it. God damn it. God damn it, Jesse. There's a note from Jesse, and it says, Ritz Carlton, New York City, a week from Friday. If only so you can kick my ass. I love you, Jesse. Macho bullshit. <laughs> okay, this leads us to a rather long and dense conversation between Derenique and Star. So we will just read the entire thing. <laughs> Just well, let's try to do bullet points here. Derenique knows that Custer's on his way and about the prisoner who arrived a week ago. That's Cassidy. He calls Star on the carpet for doing these things without telling him, and then he pauses to make himself vomit. Yeah, he has a little wand that's shaped like two fingers. Right, and uh, I probably should have mentioned at some point that he has just polished off quite a few plates of food that are in front of him now. Right, and he wants some more. And Star says, I forgot to tell you, he's bulimic. Yeah, not cool. It's making, insensitive as hell. Making fun of eating disorders. I hate to keep having to pause to talk about <laughs> stuff like this. But, I mean, even though this was only, you know, 20 years ago or so. Well, it was um, already a problem that people had in real life. Right. I'm just saying, like, our sensibilities are, I think, noticeably more evolved in certain ways. Mm -hmm. That, like, we don't find <laughs> bulimia jokes super hilarious. Right. 
Right, Star tells Derenique that Cassidy is here to lure Custer, and he thought it imprudent to tell Derenique about Custer until they had him, and begs forgiveness. Yeah, he does some pretty quick thinking on his feet here, and manages to basically bullshit his way through this conversation. Derenique reminds Star that Custer wasn't his responsibility, he had Puissant on that. Star says that Puissant disappeared shortly before Star arrived in San Francisco, and he couldn't find out why. But... Derenique says, why did Star go to San Francisco? A trivial matter. Our local agent, Sarah Featherstone, raised some questions on worldwide policy. I went there to clarify things for her. And did you? I did, old father. Star now lies that Cassidy died under torture due to a weak heart, but Custer doesn't know and is still on his way. He technically does have a weak heart. It's not beating. <laughs> Yeah, I, I thought this, if just a coincidence, it's a poetic coincidence nonetheless. Cassidy will repeatedly be described as weak or weak-hearted throughout the series. Yeah, that's interesting. Derenique asks, what awaits Custer on his arrival? That depends on what you want done with him, old father. Obviously, security's as tight as ever. We'll have more than sufficient warning when he makes his move. Killing him would be simple. Taking him alive with the nature of his power is obviously problematical. Patience, O Star. You will see why I want him soon enough. All you need do is allow him to come before me. He's potentially a very dangerous man. So am I, O Star. And he adds, You have acted wisely in this matter. As always, your judgment is above reproach and utterly sound. You remain my most trusted of lieutenants. Blessed are you. In other words, I'm on to you, O Star. You're as good as dead. I'll let you wonder what my game is, and then I'll slice your balls off. Fucked are you. <laughs> yeah, so Star is aware that that conversation didn't go quite as well as it looked. We've cut to him alone again with Marseille, and he's relaxing into a very beautiful chair. But he realizes that he is safe until they get Custer, and so he plans to get to Jesse first. The fat bastard's trying to get me to panic. It's how he likes to do things. He said I'd see what he wants with Custer, so I've got at least that long, which is good. Because if I can get to Jesse Custer, then Derenique is finished. Right, and at this point there's a joke that we already covered. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's the good fucking I mean a good fuck joke lands there. And again, I thought that part was funny, but not worth all the ridiculous ill-advisedness of the whole... Hairstar was raped, so now he's gay story. Right. Tulip calls Jesse, and he apologizes immediately. Oh my god, this is a brilliant scene. It's a tough conversation. She says he doesn't trust her, and he says, Only way I didn't trust you was not to be bulletproof. Now Jesse says that he made sure she didn't see the directions to Masada, which might be a continuity error, because he asked her to find the right road earlier when she was talking about her black slinky things. Oh, yeah, that's right, that happened. But in any case, he made sure she didn't see the directions, so he had to memorize them, so now he's a little lost. <laughs> yeah, he memorized them badly. He asks if she's going to meet him in New York like he requested. He says, yeah. Okay, I guess you must be mad as hell at me. And she whispers, no. And she hangs up. And she's just obviously heartbroken. We see that she has trashed the hotel room, and emptied her pistol into all the furniture. 
Yeah, and here's an effective prank shot of her alone in the hotel room, but for the hotel's man who is checking in, presumably in response to the gunshots. Yeah, it's very sad, and it's one of the one of the panels that I always remember about this series. Fuck you, Jesse Custer. And I thought that that was the end of the comic, but we actually have a couple more pages left. We find Frankie taking a break, complaining that they don't have Italian-made espresso at the Grail. They got guys from all over the world in this fucking place. You'd think they'd get an Italian to make the fucking espresso. Yeah, Cassidy insults him, he insults Cassidy, he shoots Cassidy in the foot. And then Cassidy says, There's a fella who's going to be coming for me, and you couldn't stop him with a hundred of your scum. You couldn't stop him with a thousand guns. Well, I tell you, friend, the shape you're in right now, you better fucking hurry. And finally, we find Jesse in a bar in France starting a brawl. All I did was ask for directions, you atomic bomb testing motherfucker. Right, so... <laughs> um, a lot happened. A lot of pieces moving around the board. Obviously, there's a lot left to go in this story arc. That's a funny bit, because earlier when he was on the phone with Tula, we kind of passed over it at the time, but he said that the guy was real friendly. You <laughs> <laughs> can see now they're being real friendly. Okay, yeah. <laughs> well, so that's really half a story arc, but the plot is moving right along. Yeah, and we got some moments of major significance. We also got, you know, some action in there. The hit squad went for Jesse and Tulip. Yeah. Cassidy killing doctors. Things like that. Yeah, and there's, in a sense, there's Frankie torturing Cassidy, which isn't really action, but it does involve a lot of gunfire. It's strange the amount of time that's spent on that. I, I guess one of the difficulties with doing a story arc that's spread out over this many issues is just having to sort of stop in and remind ourselves where each of the characters is. Yeah, there's a few different plot threads being juggled here. You know, the Saint of Killers didn't really get to do much, but we're very aware of his presence. Mm -hmm. I don't know, it doesn't feel like stalling to me that Jesse and Tulip keep having this same argument, eventually leading up to his decision to leave her behind with nothing but a note. I mean, maybe in a, in a purely pragmatic sense, Garth Ennis is stalling here, and he just, you know, he knows he has to get to a certain point before he can drop that reveal. But by really allowing them to have this argument out, I think he really tangibly renders both of their points of view on this. Yeah. And we can really sympathize with both of them. And it's just another opportunity to get to know these characters that much better. And Preacher is really a comic book built on three or four main characters who are just consistently important and who, you know, we consistently get to know them through conversations like these. Yeah, well, I agree. It's doing very good character work for Jesse and Tulip, work that's going to be important for long after this story arc. And as well, we get to see both sides of the argument. And, you know, if they didn't have it out, <laughs> if they didn't have it out at such length, I'm not sure that we would have heard what we needed to see that Tulip's right on this. Yeah. Like, she definitely brings the good points in all of those arguments. And what Jesse does to her here is a really harsh betrayal. 
Yeah, and we can see the effect that it has on her, and we fully believe it. It's interesting to see also the faith that Cassidy has in Jesse as he is being held captive. Yeah, that one took me by surprise. But we get Cassidy in a moment of unguarded sincerity, and, you know, he has complete confidence that Jesse's coming for him, which is great. Yeah. And this kind of scenario is really where Star shines as a villain. The deadly dialogue that he has with Allfather Derenique, it really puts him in an interesting position as we're beginning to see Star set up between our heroes and a really unreasonable villain. Right. Overall, Star is a villain. In this story arc, he's almost more of an anti-hero. Mm -hmm. And this is something that we'll repeat a couple more times throughout the series, where Star is put up against somebody even worse, and we get to, to see him as an anti-hero. And again, it's just, it's just such great character work going off of the old axiom that no one's the villain in their own story. Yeah. And we learn so much of Star's story that we sort of understand why he does the things he does. Well, we got to meet a major villainous presence in Derenique. We talked a little bit about him already. He's um, physically deformed in a way that does not inspire sympathy, or at least is not intended to. Yeah, and he's also clearly a vicious and clever bastard. Yeah, but he doesn't seem to have Star's disloyalty to the bloodline of Christ. No. And, and maybe his cruelty to his underlings can sort of be seen as a reflection of this. You know, Star is, like, ruthless but not petty, as you were saying. Mm -hmm. and, and perhaps that reflects a, a deeper pragmatism mm -hmm. on his part. Absolutely. Star wants the Grail for a specific purpose. Right. Not for itself alone. Right. Whereas Dierenique is just, he's a, you know, he's a complete true believer. And he internalizes the privilege that gives him to the point where he expresses it as unthinkable cruelty. Well, yeah, I mean, he's sort of drunk on his own importance. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. And, you know, completely unquestioning in his moral certitude. Yeah, and, and so Star ends up reflecting as a more complex human being with sort of his own goals and his own faults, and, and his foibles, although they are played for cheap humor, don't, uh, don't always detract from his effectiveness as a villain or as a complex character. Yeah, I think that's right. So, in our next Preacher episode, we will be wrapping up the big showdown between Jesse and the Grail, and maybe a third party, like Santa Killers. <laughs> But first, join us next week as we venture further into Dream Country and Sandman. Gonna finish up that Dream Country TPB, huh? That's the plan. All right, great. Well, if you like our show, you should check us out at vertiguys.blueberry.com. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. We've got a lot more episodes and show notes on every episode. We would love to hear from you, so reach out to us at vertiguys at gmail.com or at vertiguys on Twitter. Yeah, we're very interested in doing listener questions. If you guys would like to send some in, if you just want to send off a quick 
electronic message discussing comic books and why they're great, that's cool too. You can also ask questions on our Twitter. If you listen to the show on iTunes, hey, why not take a minute to give us a positive review or a subscription? Yeah, we really appreciate those as well. And they're really very important in getting exposure and, you know, letting other people find the show. So thanks in advance. But as always, thanks so much just for listening. Yep, thanks everybody.